We're the Inspire Podcast. We're dedicated to bringing you the latest research in medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine, and everything in between, from both students and academics in a language everyone can understand. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Inspire Journal Podcast to stay up to date. Visit the journal's website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk to access original research and articles from students or find out about how you can get more involved. On this week's episode, we're joined by James Carlyle. James is a final year veterinary student at the University of Bristol with an intercalated master's in global wildlife, health and conservation. We had a really great discussion and touched on some really important topics. And he recently submitted one of his papers to the Inspire Journal looking at infectious diseases in big cat species and the impact that this can have on their conservation. Okay, so on today's episode, we're really excited to be joined by James Carlyle. Um, James is a final year veterinary student at the University of Bristol who did an intercalated master's degree in global wildlife health and conservation. James has a special interest in feline medicine and is currently working on publishing his recent research into a historical outbreak of FIP in cheetahs. Um, We're really excited to have you. Hi James, how are you? I'm good thanks, how is everybody? Oh good, been a nice chill week. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the weather's doing, I'm not really sure whether I'm coming or going. I went outside to sunbathe earlier and it started snowing it's strange like we got such a weekend of like really really nice sunshine like summer is here and then it was snowing it wasn't sticking and then it was sticking and i was like what is what is this you know i have no idea apparently it did in london but it's not snowing in wales it's not snowing in wales at the moment um so obviously um you have submitted your research to the Inspire Journal. So just mm-hmm. to kick off with, um, can you tell us a little bit about your research um, that you submitted to the journal? Just a little brief outline. Um, yeah, so I was when I was sort of like deciding what to do research on, I saw that um, uh, diseases in non-domestic felids aren't, aren't really studied an awful lot. I thought there was a bit of a, a knowledge gap there. So that's what I wanted to do my research in, but then obviously to do that, I wanted to see where the gaps were. So yeah, I did my literature review on them, on all like the most important diseases um, in mainly large cats, like the leopards and the lions and the cheetahs and the tigers, which was quite cool. And there were some there were some nice findings. That was what led me to study FIP, uh, feline infectious peritonitis in cheetahs. But then there were some other there were some other good things there as well, <laughs> like <laughs> the um, distemper outbreak in the Serengeti lions, which wiped out about a third of them. Um, feline immunodeficiency virus, which is like the uh, the cat equivalent of HIV, um, which is sort of like an ongoing problem that because it's kind of like a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. So yeah, that was a, that was the basis of the research. It was quite cool. So when you say non-domestic felids, is that just all cats that we don't have in our house? Yeah, more or less. Or are it's we any... talking about like big cats, um, like your like your lions, and that's who you, that's who you focused on. I sort of looked at uh, the most sort of representative, maybe like the more popular popular non-domestic cats. So that would have been yeah, the other lions and the tigers and the cheetahs. Um, but it can, I think it is more or less anything that isn't just your domestic cat. It also probably wouldn't include like feral cats that we've got in the UK that still could be domesticated. Um, so any cat that isn't just your average house cat, more or less. Do you have a preference of non-domestic fellas that's your favourite? Well, I've always been a bit of a fan of lions, 
because I feel like everyone is like since Lion King age I've always liked lions um <laughs> but then I feel like my loyalty has shifted a little bit because I saw tigers bathing once and I thought that was too cute and that was enough to convince me um but then I after spending the summer with cheetahs I think I've I think I flipped um, so you're basically a cat person then you're not so much of a dog person oh definitely a cat person yeah yeah it's all yes I have a cat um his name's Billy and I'm utterly obsessed with him and I talk to him every single day and I think <laughs> I trust him more than anyone else in my life <laughs> I was just about to say something really weird <laughs> 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 I'm not you have to say it now <laughs> subject of lions and um, I literally had a flashback I have not thought about this in ages but when I was like small like maybe seven or eight <laughs> we did a tap dance to the Lion King and we had to wear these like um actual manes on our heads but not like cardboard cut out manes they were like weird like hood things that had like corduroy like sticking down from it and that's how I think of lions that's why I wasn't going to say it because (laughs) so so did that turn you off lions then (laughs) yeah so it's lions lions not your favorite no uh, I I think that after seeing pictures of your cheetahs James um they look quite cute but I, I don't know I've never really seen any big cats up close and personal I think a picture of a baby cheetah can is quite a powerful thing. I think it can turn a lot of people into more of a cat person because they are just the most adorable thing I've ever seen. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you obviously study quite a broad range of diseases um, in your lit review regarding mm-hmm. these non-domestic felids. Um, but I know there's going to be quite a lot of people listening who maybe don't have a veterinary background or aren't medical. Um, so can you give us a quick overview of what is FIP? What what does that mean? Yeah, um, so FIP is, it stands for feline infectious peritonitis, which probably doesn't help people that don't know what that disease is. Um, It's it's a disease that was first recognised in domestic cats, and it's still fairly recent um, discovery. It more or less, um, obviously everyone knows about the coronavirus now, it's an infection with a type of coronavirus which causes... um, like a it normally in, in domestic cats causes like a very mild uh, gastrointestinal disease so um like they, they might be a little bit unwell a little bit of diarrhea or something but it's not it's definitely not fatal but then it undergoes a series of mutations inside the cat um to develop this virus which is called the feline infectious peritonitis virus um and then that sort of infects it sort of enters the bloodstream and then it and then it sort of wreaks havoc it, um it can affect every part, like every organ system, more or less in the body. And it's sort of characterized by a fluid buildup in the lungs, um, fluid buildup in the in the peritoneum, like the abdominal area. Um, and it can present sort of, the, it's a bit of a weird description, but there's a wet form and then there's a dry form. The wet form is the one where there's fluid buildup everywhere. Um, and cats sort of slowly deteriorate into death, basically. Um, but then there's this dry form where they get these granuloma um, masses form on different organs and it can happen anywhere it can happen behind their eyes and the brain kidneys and then sort of it sort of gets them that way instead but that's quite a it's quite a difficult thing to pin down because because there's such a wide range of clinical signs you can get with that so that's fip in cats Uh, but there are quite big differences between that in cats and that in cheetahs in the in cats that mutation which leads to their sort of ultimate demise only happens in about 1% of coronavirus cases, 
whereas in cheetahs, 60% of them, well, 60% of them that get infected with the coronavirus went on to to die in this outbreak, which is why it's such a it's such large concern because cheetahs are vulnerable already. And, um, you know, if this happens to the wrong population, it could really lead to a sort of extinction level event. But also the the systemic disease, like the, the yeah, sort of serious version happens in every single one of the cheetahs. So, yeah, it's quite a... Mm-hmm. It's quite a nasty disease altogether. <laughs> so coronavirus is obviously like very big at the moment um, and it's, everyone knows about it. What's the difference between like feline versus human coronavirus? Um, well, the coronavirus is a, is a really, really large family of viruses mm-hmm. um, and in different species, it, it can infect in completely different ways. So really, it sounds as exciting to say, but it's, it's basically an entirely different virus. Um, it's just from the same family. So the human coronavirus, obviously, is we know it as a primarily a respiratory virus, um, which leads to that classic sort of coughing and fever. Um, but in the feline coronavirus is is much more a gastrointestinal um, virus, and it infects that way. Um, but then obviously it can mutate into this widespread systemic virus. Um, but it but it's not really recognised as a respiratory virus at all, and they can't. Um, there's no crossover between them. People can't get infected with the feline coronavirus. And I'm not sure about cats getting infected with the human one. I think that's still a bit of a, a bit of a debate. I think it's happened once, maybe. I was going to say, but didn't it happen sure. that once in a... Was it a tiger or was it an actual cat? I really can't remember. But they have linked it now to... Um, sorry, this is I, I read an article. They've linked coronavirus in humans to um, myocardial disease in dogs. So um, dogs that get coronavirus like the human SARS-CoV-2 um get heart disease oh my goodness like this is literally like an article in the vet record I read this week so I think that's pretty new but yeah so that's quite interesting I don't know about cats though I've been seeing things in the in the news this week about pets needing COVID vaccinations and I haven't really been reading an awful lot into it but I wonder if that's got something to do with that um yeah in cats I know I know it's been linked to like the non-domestic cats I, I I know it's been observed in zoos and stuff and i think there has been a domestic cat case but it, as i said i think there's only been one um but i'm not sure if it's just one of those things that that isn't being reported in the news right now because people have a lot more to be concerned about and also i imagine if people find out that the domestic cats can be infected with coronavirus then there would be possibly a little bit of a situation for cats protection i was gonna i was gonna say that um i know that feline coronavirus can be quite scary even just for domestic cat owners like when i i bought like a, a lockdown kitten basically um i don't think i should call it a lockdown kitten because that kind of implies that you, you get bored of it and you throw it away but it, it's not actually like a, i still have it obviously um <laughs> him i should say but when i first got him he was really really sick like really really sick um because you see him in like the photos and everything and it was like oh so cute so fluffy so i went and got him got him home and he kind of ridden with fleas it was like it was pretty horrible but i had like a the only kind of proper like vet experience of my life really for like a I'd say like a month or two like caring for this like little like pretty much almost it must have been like six or seven weeks old kitten like on the verge of death but one of the things that the vet talked about that was possible it was FIV and um, feline coronavirus as like two two things he could possibly have and I remember like reading up about them and getting quite like kind of Kind of worried that it could be one of those things especially fiv because fiv 
translates to like a lifetime of treatment that can be quite you know if you've just gone and bought a cat you find out your cat your your newborn kitten basically has FIV that's like a a life caring for a you know chronically ill cat so it's kind of like quite a quite a big thing it just kind of reminds me of um going through that kind of experience FIV and FIP are two of those um they're those like long-term virus mutations that cause all these different problems I'm like it just causes everything forever and yeah yeah because FIV is well it's the same like I, I feel like it's the same as within humans it's really difficult to it's so difficult to pinpoint because it can make them just ill with other things. And that's the point of it is that their immune systems are depleted. So they can actually just get ill with something else. But the reason is that they've got FIV. And FIP is just a bit of a nightmare to... That's such what's... a nightmare to diagnose. Sorry. What's FIV? FIV is um, feline immunodeficiency virus. Virus, yeah. Okay. So it's the, the sort of... It's the one that I mentioned earlier, which is the, yeah. um, like the cat equivalent of HIV. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's sense. normally a little bit less. Um, it's quite it's quite manageable, but it's a uh, but it's not nice to. <laughs> it's not nice when your cat has it. I, I don't no, think. that was sounds your... horrible, Sam. That does not sound very nice at all. Was your cat okay? Is your cat better now? Yeah, that's my. Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. What's your like, cat's name? Loki. Loki. Like the like the Norse god. Like the the main the main problem was that he just wouldn't eat. I remember that was stressful. Like trying to force him to practically like trying to like force feed him um but i mean throughout the whole thing like i i kind of hardly knew what was going on save for i remember watching frantically like uh youtube videos about what to do if my cat has fiv and stuff like that um, <laughs> and what to do if like my cat won't eat or my kitten won't eat this is really difficult like i had to basically just drench every one of the problems as well uh, i don't want to turn like a kitten care episode but one of the problems as well because obviously the the seller misrepresented the age of the kitten and you're not allowed to sell kittens before eight weeks of age because they're not properly weaned at that stage but this kitten was clearly about i think it was about five weeks maybe four or five weeks when i bought him and i'm not experienced enough to know that so i bought him and then he wasn't properly i had to feed him like kitten milk like whiskers kitten milk it's the only thing he'd eat that's kind of a it's a, it's a thing in itself but he's like happy healthy nightmare now <laughs> we need like a, a whole episode on like loki's journey <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. A little documentary. <laughs> wait so is your cat a particular breed or is it um a moggy i don't really know to be honest he's uh as you can imagine the the seller information was not particularly robust yeah um <laughs> but I, I think he's some kind of there's definitely like a bit of either like a Maine Coon or like a Norwegian forest cat. Like he's got like long black with like kind of gray tip. He's, he's like very pretty. Like he's a super pretty cat. Um, and he knows it as well. <laughs> so he kind of like struts around the house. Um, I was kind of like looking up online. I remember at the time I knew more about it at the time, but kind of like w whether particular breeds and stuff are at more kind of risk of these, these kind of illnesses, which would be much put to you. Like, do you know if, are there any particular breeds that are predisposed to FIP or FIV or anything like that? Um, yeah, my awareness of it is that pure breed cats below the age of one are the are the ones that are at most risk of getting FIP. So yeah, I think I think you were right to be well, the vet was right to be quite concerned about that. And it's such a such a grave prognosis from there um, because there is thought to be a genetic link with the development of. Um, of FIP, and that's why in cheetahs it's so. See my segue there. Um, that's why in cheetahs it's so um 
I, I think it's so bad is because they had like a massive, they supposedly had a massive, massive genetic bottleneck about 12,000 years ago. And since then, um, they're all quite like genetically uniform. So their response to uh, viruses are quite similar. So when they get infected with this coronavirus, they're all, all of them are genetically predisposed to, to develop um, uh, FIP. But what we don't know is how, how some of them actually survive it and some of them, well, the majority of them um, don't. Quite a lot of the, as we've just said, there's a lot of um, genetic uniformity and um, if the cheetahs get affected by this or affected quite badly, 60% have a really bad time. Um, so why 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 do we care? Why is conservation and conservation of these species something that we should all be aware of? And is why is it something that's important? Um, I think, as in why should we care about conservation or cheetahs in particular? Both. I think with cheetahs, the main reason for their depletion is, is a result of us, basically. Um, you know, a lot of people poach or actively hunt cheetahs. Um, and then we also have started using like the land that they occupy. So that's depleted them as well. Um, and then obviously the the addition of of a possible outbreak like FIP that could wipe them out. I feel like it's sort of our responsibility to um, to try and mitigate the effects of something like that. As obviously if this happened, you know, no one can say what would happen if there was no human interference. But it's far more likely that something could just tip them over the edge into extinction because they're currently classed as vulnerable i think there are only about seven thousand cheetahs left in the world so i think it's partly just a like a moral responsibility but then conservation in general it affects every animal has its place in an ecosystem doesn't it it affects everything and if we're the ones that are mainly responsible for destroying it then it's kind of up to us to try and prevent that from happening as much as possible so obviously if you've got your conservation ripple effect one species goes like the whole ecosystem's disrupted if it goes slow enough, does the ecosystem not get as disrupted because you adapt with the change? Yeah, I think I think things do just like die out slowly, and then other things, you, you know, like naturally there are like waves of populations and stuff throughout the year. I remember doing this in GCSE biology with the, oh, the hair right. the population goes up and then it goes down. Um, I remember the the cyclical the cyclical graph things. I remember drawing them. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I think it's it's normal for extinctions to happen. I think everything does adapt. But then I can't remember. This has been in the limelight recently. Um, and I think Attenborough was the one that mentioned it. But I can't remember the rate at which extinction is happening compared to what it should be. Um, I want to say it's a 100 or a 1,000 times more, like a species dying per year, than should. But I'm happy to be corrected on that because I don't have the number in front of me. And I can't remember. So, uh our conservation what we're worried about is the impacts that we've ha that we've had the stuff that's our fault is what we're trying to conserve stuff that happens yeah, naturally like, we're not that fucked about yeah so again if, if you took the humans out of it you know the fip outbreak is it would just be a part of nature but also the reason that the outbreak in particular that i'm studying happened was because a cheetah was relocated um there was some spillover event from another animal this one infected cheetah got introduced without screening, without quarantine, um, and then every single cheetah got infected with the coronavirus, and then 60% of them died. What about the December outbreak in lions? You said that that worked out a third of the population. Um, is that something we're not worried about because that's a natural disease process, or is there a link to humans there? Yeah, I think with that, the jury's out a little bit about how it actually started. Um, 
because there's a bit of research um, where basically it was concluded that there was possibly a spillover event from domestic dogs, um, sort of if they were like sort of nomadic lions wandering sort of around the edges of the Serengeti um, that came into contact with infected dogs because uh, there were about 30,000 dogs that live around um, the Serengeti and most of them aren't vaccinated against distemper. So that's a, you know, th these are owned dogs. This is a domestic, like a domestic dog problem, which again, takes us back to humans. So there's quite a good chance that that happened as a result of people, again, sort of indirectly, but still as a result of people. Um, but it is a, like, it's a fairly good point because there's also a chance that the, the distemper virus has been circulating throughout the ecosystems for like years and years and years. It's been found in hyenas and, and, and well, loads of animals um, throughout Africa. So there's a, just a chance that one of that there was a mutation um, and then that was able to infect the lions and wipe them out. So as I said, the jury's out, but it's not definite that humans weren't at least partly responsible for the outbreak that, that wiped out the lions. I think it's kind of sometimes a bit of like a, you can sort of end up going around in circles thinking of like, is it our fault? Is it something else's fault? But I think um, there are lots of instances, I think throughout evolution where it's not like a slow change, it's a rapid change and everything dies very quickly. And arguments about whether things are dying off quicker than they should or whether it's our fault. I, I kind of think it doesn't matter in the sense that I think we as a species, like our kind of existence on the planet depends on things kind of staying more or less the same. Like we depend very strongly on lots of these ecosystems in the state that they're currently in and small changes in them can lead to massive effects on population and illness and, and stuff that, you know, we care about a lot because it affects us as humans. So I kind of feel like it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter whose fault it is. And it doesn't necessarily matter how big the impact is, like whether it happens naturally um, or whether we have something to do with it. The, the change still happens and some population somewhere on Earth will still feel that impact. So I like I think you see it a lot, like it kind of goes round and round in circles, like who who do we blame for this, who do we blame for that? But at the end of the day it's kind of just it, it does have like a, an actual effect on us. And even though we're kind of like nature's great shapeshifter, like we're we're so good at adapting to different situations and different environments and all that kind of thing, different um requirements, it still like changes because of the way that we structure economies and stuff like that have very big impacts even when it happens at a seemingly very small level so like you know if all the cheetahs just die because of because of feline coronavirus um you know that could actually it could end up wiping off billions of dollars somehow from some stock exchange and that has a huge impact on millions of people's lives so it's just like such a fine balance i feel that we live in that these tiny differences have a real impact even if you're not into the kind of um conservation for the sake of the animals kind of point of view it has a massive impact on our yeah. lives yeah i do agree and also going back to um what ellie did like said earlier about if it's natural is it okay i think the lines are getting a bit more blurred there because the the impact of natural events are worse as a result of us depleting populations um so I think even when it isn't, yeah, even when you can't point the finger at something in particular, it's worth probably investigating how you can help it if there's any way to help. 
so when you're um what is your sort of experience in the conservation of these species like these big cat species what are the have you ever worked on a conservation fund have you been a part of any of that and what are the if do you know anything about the sort of key aims and how they run these these big conservation programs to help these animals yeah well i can only really speak for for cheetah conservation i've been to a, another conservation before um uh, before i went to this cheetah conservation but i i can't say w- with all of my heart that i think it was very ethically run so i wouldn't really want to pass comment on how they like how exactly they managed um the sort of species to kind but the one the one I went to, which was in Namibia, which is where most, um, like it has the highest density of cheetahs in the world. I think you, you skirt a fine line, especially coming, you know, sort of from the outside, telling people exactly how to live their lives. But it's, it's a lot about listening to, you know, it's, it's, I think it's easy to sit on the outside and say, people hunting cheetahs is bad. But then when you sort of zoom into the situation in Namibia, the reason it's happening is because their economy relies like a lot on farming and a lot of people depend like their livelihoods depend on farming um but cheetahs when there's when they're struggling for food will then will then take out farm animals um and communities started noticing that they were having less and less goats and uh, you know every goat lost is actually a considerable amount of money and then it's the difference of whether they're able to even you know feed their kids or not um so then people started hunting cheetahs and the conservation's aim was to listen to that and then say, well, can we come up with another solution? So one thing that they do, which has worked remarkably well, is um, is the use of guard dogs. So the conservation, um, they they train and they raise guard dogs, and that's enough. Cheetahs aren't very; they're not very confrontational animals. They're not like a that they don't really attack very often if they don't think that they can win. And if you had just the act of having a dog surrounding farm animals, um. It is enough to deter them. I, I don't think there have been any incidences of cheetahs, um, of cheetahs attacking farm animals. So one thing that they do is, is they raise and then they give these dogs away for very low price. It's not free. I think it, I think it's just for a very low price. And then that's incentive that people stop, the people stop hunting cheetahs. Then and I think it's easy to look at the the continuing decline in cheetah populations and see how bad it is. But I think without that it possibly would have declined a lot faster. So that's one way they're helping. And then the other way is just getting, you know, they they, they tour uh, worldwide, making people aware of the um, issues and then they get sponsors and that's how they get their finances. Uh, people from around the world come to volunteer there and do their own research projects with the cheetahs. Um, and then in, in Namibia as well, they, there's a strong pull for people. Um, like the, the year is often split so that in like sort of the June, July, August time, people come from internationally to work with them but then sort of like in our winter months um it's mainly namibians that work there and then that's a good way to get people involved and on board with the conservation incentive as well rather than just like walking around saying you're wrong and um stop it i think we're kind of like i think it's the right time to ask i want to inject our weekly dose of controversy here so i was wondering what you think of trophy hunting as a method of conservation as a method of conservation yeah 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 no not 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 as like a like a fun pastime i mean like a as a as a way of um you know because like that for lots of people kind of trumpet it as something that does help conservation because it brings in huge amounts of money if you can kind of identify 
if you highly regulate it and just make sure that this these few individuals of the population can be killed off in order to then fund you know further conservation efforts which have a net positive it's like a it's like yes a few of the individuals of the population die but in terms of a net positive it manages to kind of work for the greater good so it's but it's obviously still like a controversial thing that obviously rustles a lot of feathers especially in the western world what species are you sort of specifically referring to or just any and all trophy hunting well i mean we could like do a whole number of podcasts where we talk about individual species i mean there are examples of it working for some not for others so i mean we're talking about cheetahs here so let's talk about cheetahs like when it comes to cheetahs do you think there would be a role of trophy hunting in aiding the conservation um i think in short no (laughs) would be my answer uh I, I feel like I'm at risk of sounding quite close-minded about it, which is exactly what I was just advocating against. Um, and it possibly is born out, out of a little bit of naivety, but I would hope that conservation efforts would not have to rely on actively depleting endangered populations in order to save. Um, I see what you mean with you know the sacrifice of one, like the detriment of one uh, to save multiple others. But... Um, I don't think it's something that should be advocated or, or encouraged anyway. And the reason I asked which which um, uh, species in, in particular were you talking about, because a lot of people hunt rhinos, and that definitely is not a good idea because there's only, I, I can't remember the number, but I feel like there's only really a handful of rhinos left and any one getting getting hunted is actually quite a large hit for the for the conservation effort there's obviously a difference between poaching yeah. and trophy hunting yeah yeah yeah. just to clarify that because lots with with rhinos and things is often poaching which is a different thing i'm not i'm not advocating poaching just yeah saying what we can about trophy hunting. It, does it not depend on um the number of well it would depend on the number of animals of that species that are left um but then how do you sort of determine a cutoff point i don't know if there's above x number left in the wild or like they're fine as fit on the IEC um, red list then that's okay i know that um with so i think one of like the the success stories of um trophy hunting has been with right like some some species of rhino that there are ways of kind of like i i think what it kind of boils down to is um a less kind of like not really pointed but uh, a nice way of asking the question is how much does money really factor into cheetah conservation because it's one of those things where if if money plays a big part which obviously it usually does then it can be a very good way to raise funds and also develop local economy and things like that and uh, giving more protection to the the animal stocks that are there because it's not just now something that's there for the good of nature but it's there as a as a resource as well, and people, you know, you play on their greed, they're more likely to defend a res- like an economic resource than they are to just do something for out of the good of their hearts. But it all still boils down to money. So, like, how how much of a role does money really play in cheetah conservation, or are there kind of other things that are maybe more important to cheetahs than um, other animals, for example? Yeah, it's something. To be fair, it's something that I've not I've not really like. I wouldn't say I've thought about an awful lot, and I wouldn't pretend to be an expert in in the sort of like cost benefit of um of allowing trophy hunting. It's something that I think uh, I would definitely be really cautious. I think it's like a trod carefully type of thing because there's um 
I think there's a lot of risks with almost like appearing welcoming for something like trophy hunting and giving it that green light. Like, I, I think that that has the potential to be a little bit dangerous with, you know, allowing that mindset to, to take over a little bit. But like, I, I don't personally know the um, how much of a benefit it can actually have in the long run. So I wouldn't want to say a, like a blanket no to the whole thing. That's interesting, though. It's always fun to just throw a bit of controversy into the mix, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, I think there have there have been examples of it being, you know, useful. And I think when what you need is to raise money in order to fund ranges, in order to fund training, in order to fund vets and stuff to be able to actually look after the animals, then, you know, if you have somebody who's willing to spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to shoot a rhino, then it can kind of end up being a net net positive. I think it's like a it's a it's a it's an outside of the box thing to think about because yeah, like you said, like it, it seems like a weird way of benefiting to kind of go up like hunt, like hunt the resource in order to expand the resource. But in a lot of ways as well, I think it it it's kind of um, you know, there are a lot of things where it kind of works a bit like that, like almost by commodifying it, you kind of give it a value beyond just the sort of sentimental or um, ecological value that it has, but that a lot of people can't see. I do think that it can be beneficial, but obviously if you have like a, say with cheetahs, like if there's only 7,000 left in the wild, then it's it's like a, I don't know what, like what's the point where it makes sense, what the point where it doesn't. And also like, you can always say like, these are the numbers you're allowed to go, and like this is numbers that you're officially allowed to go and hunt. Then it's really hard to factor in as well things like poaching and stuff like that, which you're always trying to stop, but you just never have any idea how much of it is actually going on. So that's kind of like a, I say poaching is like a separate thing. We're like imagining a perfect world here where you know you can trophy hunt and not worry about anything else. Happening yeah, inside. um, it's definitely an interesting idea, but I do also wonder what the uh, like what the ripple effect of that would have because I'm I'm imagining if uh, the c conservation I worked at if they if it became known that they were allowing people to hunt um well you know trophy hunt cheetahs for you know ten thousand per cheetah ten thousand pounds US dollars per cheetah um how many people would then be willing to spend a sponsor them in the first place and be actually take the time to go and volunteer with them because like I would try and be open-minded to it but I have to say I think it would have quite like I think it would have had quite a bearing on whether I would have gone there um to do the research that I did and I think a lot of people would be quite similar because probably a lot of people wouldn't think about it in the depth that like even the depth that we've discussed it now which is not that deep people would just be like you're hunting it and it's bad and I think that that would possibly have like a net negative effect thing because you would get the initial 10 20 000 but then your sponsor that's giving you five thousand a year like if five of them pulled out then um then, then you'd have lost out in, in total i think i guess it's just like like you mentioned with people kind of looking poorly upon trophy hunting um on the one hand i obviously yeah i get that like it, it looks it maybe doesn't look good and we kind of associate it with news stories that come out of uh, like there was that that one dentist who went and shot a lion or something like that and then posed with it um and everybody obviously outraged about it um but at the same time just because it's one of those things where just because the public image against it is so bad we still need to think about 
the case studies of it actually being very successful. Um, and I don't know a huge amount about it personally, but I like I I know from people who do that it it is it has been shown to be very successful. So it's one of those things where I feel like it's sort of the ends justify the means in that situation. If it is allowing populations to grow, if it is supporting local economy and it's kind of satisfying both the human the human needs and the ecological needs at the same time, then it's probably just because the kind of public image of it is so bad, that's something that we should try to change as opposed to kind of conceding to it and just being like, well, you know, that's just that's just how it is. Like I get that it is like a it's a difficult one. But at the same time, I do think with a with a lot of like conservation stuff, because I think a lot of the time, like us just as an organism in the world, we're gonna have some impact on our environment. There isn't a single organism that lives that doesn't impact its environment in some way. There are very few ways that we can kind of not detriment our own lives while alleviating some of the pressure on ecosystems that we live in and around. So I think it's rare that you can kind of find you have to you have to think very outside the box with a lot of this kind of stuff. I do kind of see trophy hunting as one of those outside the box solutions that it seems like, you know, something that would come up in a movie and they'd be like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then actually it makes a lot of sense once you follow the route down. So I think it's good that we like have the conversation and kind of like put it out there because it's not something you hear much about. Um, I think for lots of the reasons that you've said, really. But I do think like it has it has potential to to fix things in certain situations or has been shown to work in certain cases. But you know, <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into conservation research as a um, yeah? So I feel like growing up, it's probably a similar story to a lot of people. But growing up, I was always like super fascinated by um by wildlife really like when you see on tv programs like planet earth and stuff um i always find it really quite otherworldly as a bit like particularly african wildlife i feel like like elephants and giraffes like what the hell like how did they come to be um so i've always just been quite fascinated by those um and then the messages when they sort of portray these amazing animals it was always with this horrible backdrop of but they're all like they're all possibly going extinct soon like this one's endangered this is critically endangered um by 2050 xyz will be extinct like as i went further into veterinary and saw that there were masters available uh, for me to intercalate in which would delve into that i thought it was quite a good opportunity to to actually look into that topic in detail and i feel like now i'm in a position where as a vet and um and as somebody who who really likes conservation and has a master's in that it's it's quite a nice position to be in to try and do my bit to to help out a little bit so like you mentioned an intercalation. Um, for people who may not know what intercalation is, uh, could you give us a little um, brief about what that is? It's basically, uh, it's sort of like a year out to do something that you want is probably the, the simplest way of explaining it. It's um, available to people on, I, I think it's just medical courses, like the dentistry, the, the veterinary and the medic. Um, and it, about halfway through your degree, it more or less is a chance to sort of press pause on your course and then go and do a bachelor's. Um, or a master's in something in something of your choosing, um, which, which is quite nice because I think these medical courses are quite a lot of information broadly covered, um, and there's not a lot of depth there. Whereas this gives you time to you know do your own research and then go into a topic that you're really interested in 
it's also nice just to have it like a year off and meet different people i think um so that's what intercalation is and i did mine um with ellie uh, we did a master's in global wildlife health and conservation and that was where i got my idea to research fip in in tutors and doing my lit review on non-domestic uh, diseases in non-domestic feelings um yeah i would say the thing about intercalation is that um it does give you a chance to explore a different topic because obviously as james was saying in these medical courses like obviously it's a lot of information as james said um but also feel like the way of testing and the way of examining medical courses and these sort of clinical courses is very it's quite exam based and like occasionally obviously you have placements and you have like clinical scenarios and things but um i felt like by doing a master's you were sort of exposed to this different style of learning material and applying it and then there was a lot more freedom to choose what even within the scopes of like different essays and different projects you could choose you, you could choose what you were interested in to write your essay about and i would i would still say i don't know if you agree but I learned so much doing those essays and like researching in detail all these different topics and these aspects of these topics I was really interested in. And I managed to retain the knowledge way more, way more than I would if I did an exam. And then you just kind of forget it the next week because you've spent so long um, learning all these different like materials and things in your for the exam. And then after the exam's done, you, I don't know about everyone else, but I just forget, I forget it. Um, not instantly, but, you know, maybe like a week later. Whereas pouring all the effort into sort of writing and crafting this like essay that you poured your heart and soul into, um, I felt like I retained a lot more information and got to read broadly about topics I was interested in. Um, so I, I would highly recommend intercalating to anyone who's considering it. I am in a position where I'm considering applying for intercalation in the coming years. I, I still don't know. I have to look really into finding a course or a degree that's right for me. And I think that's what you're talking about. Like you have to be passionate about it. Otherwise you're not going to really learn anything that year, are you? You really have to be passionate about the subject that you decide to take and you have to be interested in it. And then you can make it into fabulous year. But that's where that's a tough choice. You just have to make sure you find something that you like. I was gonna say also when I was considering interpolating or not, the um as superficial as it sounds there's also the social aspect of it um because you are on a you're on an intense sort of five-year six-year-long course with your cohort and you do all this you go through all this stuff like all the content and all the lectures and all the exams and all the horrible things um and then to intercalate you literally get rid of all that and you have to drop down and you have to start completely again um that was something that i did consider when I was deciding whether to intercalate which is why I think it's definitely important to do something that you are passionate about that it's worth taking the extra year spending the extra money and dropping down into a different year um because yeah it's it's different yeah I was gonna say I was actually gonna say the same thing and I was a bit worried I was gonna sound silly but I think one of a genuine real concern about intercalating is is sort of like not graduating with your cohort and like missing your friends and stuff but I did find First of all, it was quite like we we'd spent a number of years with the with the same people, which is great, but also it's really nice to get to just you know mingle with different people. Um, and it doesn't mean that you just lose like I I forgot I think that you don't just instantly lose touch with everyone that you that you are friends with. You can still stay in contact with them. Um, so I think I think socially is it's really really good. I I was I was just, I as somebody 
to, you know, I'm not at the point of indicating yet. I'm not even allowed to because I one-upped intercalation and just did a completely different degree before I decided to do medicine. But um, I think as well, it's worth considering that if, if you, I don't think people need to feel pressured necessarily to intercalate either because it's not the only point in your career that you can branch out and study something else. Like, um, I know of many uh, doctors who have later gone on to pursue other areas of study alongside their work once they're finally in the workplace. Um, so it's it's not kind of like your one and only chance to go and do something else. Um, there are definitely chances that pop up elsewhere along the world, uh, along the road. And while, you know, you can't do what I did and, and jump back in time and take a different undergraduate degree, um, like a, like a full three year one, um, it's equally, it's not the only opportunity to do that either. So I think that's what Yeah, I, d- I mean, I definitely agree. It's certainly not the be all and end all. This doesn't mean if you don't intercalate, you can never, you can never stray away from what you, like something else you want to do that isn't necessarily in the same field. I found that in the in the medical course that we do, it's um, it's like Ellie said, there's a lot of, it's very exam based, and I feel like you're a bit more or less. I feel benefited in the medical world now because I think we don't really get the opportunity to practice evidence based medicine very much, um, and it's actually just such an important part of of being in the medical profession, profession whether you're a dentist or a medic or a vet, um. And I feel much, much, much more capable now at sourcing my own sourcing my own information and deciding whether I think that is or is not reliable. Um, and I think that's a, a super important skill, um, which I, you know, as sort of Sam was saying, like you can you can learn it other ways. It isn't your only opportunity, but it's definitely something I found has benefited me and will benefit me in veterinary practice. Just the skill of filtering through. Um, information and knowing where to source it yeah I think especially being able to do like a research project and and things like that it really opened my eyes to the world of research that was what got me into research in the first place was intercalating because before I think the only exposure I sort of had to doing my own research project or thinking of topics that I'm interested in and writing essays about them was through intercalating Um, and yeah I think that really stressed the importance of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based veterinary medicine so where can people find you, James, if they want to get in touch or ask questions about intercalating or uh, conservation research? Have you got an email or Instagram or Facebook account that you want to plug at all? Um, I mean, if anyone wants to ask me a question about my research, I'm happy to do the best I can to answer. Um, yeah, so I think I've given my email to you guys and then I've also given my Instagram, which is um, which is Le Carlisle and ask about my research and I'll do the best I can to answer any questions. Yeah, thank you. It's been really interesting chatting to you. I think we covered quite a lot of topics there. Um, So thank you so much for coming on. We've really enjoyed having you. Um, What would be everyone's sort of take home message from this podcast episode? I think mine would be um, about the trophy hunting and how we could use that for conservation and really thinking um, in detail about how that could or couldn't be useful. I think we had an insightful discussion regarding intercalations, reasons for and not to do it, um, which is something food for thought for me personally, someone who is a potential applicant for integration in the future. So I enjoy that a lot. One thing that I didn't realise is how like uh how how much work because like as a cat owner, you're always scared of things like FYP and FIV. Even though if your cat does have it, it's not the end of the world. It's probably gonna be okay. But 
never really think about, you know, like 60% fatality in cheetahs, never really thought about that before. So I guess, you know, if your cat has FIP or FIV, it's not great, but it could be worse. You could have a cheetah. So nice. <laughs> um, I yeah. think it's been quite interesting looking at sort of, <laughs> I know, questioning myself a little bit more on the politics of conservation and how money and um, and other factors can play into play into the conservation of big cats. We did really enjoy having you, and um, we hope you enjoyed being here as well. Yeah, thank you very much yeah. for having me. Thank you very much for the, for the interesting discussion. It was good. Thank you so much to James for joining us on this week's episode of the Inspire podcast. We did really enjoy the discussion. I think it really got us thinking about the different viewpoints and stakeholders involved in conservation efforts and why it's so important to be aware of conservation as a topic on the whole. I certainly learned a lot from this discussion, especially surrounding sort of trophy hunting as a method of conservation. Um, So let us know what you guys think by leaving us a review. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspiredjournalpodcast at gmail.com or through our social media. We've been Sam, Natasha and Ellie bringing you another episode of the Inspire podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Inspire Student Podcast and leave us a review. We're really passionate about research and we would love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please share with your friends and on social media. The Inspire podcast is brought to you by the Inspire Student Journal. You can visit the journal's website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk to find out more. We're students and we're all still learning, so we appreciate any comments, feedback or error corrections in relation to the topics discussed. All research presented is correct at the time of recording. Any medical information provided does not constitute official medical advice. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be experiencing. Views expressed in the Inspired Journal podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Inspired Student Journal or of the institutions we are attached to.